This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia, where you can now study single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in a full university degree. To find out more, head to open.edu.au. This is Mate, a podcast about marketing, advertising, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey, and I'm a digital strategist and entrepreneur. Today, we're visiting one of the all-time great mate episodes. This is perhaps the one interview I have received the most feedback about in the entire history of mate. Last year, I traveled to Boston in the United States to interview Manish Sethi. Now, Manish is a really interesting guy. He's done some really fascinating things in his life, like write a best-selling book and buying a private island. But the business he's working on right now is probably the most interesting of all. It's called Pavlock, and it's a wearable wristband that electric shocks you. The reason? It's a habit-changing device, and he's had some amazing results. Listen into this interview to hear about the story of how he has built that business and some of the crazy challenges he's had to overcome, such as having an argument with billionaire Mark Cuban on a nationally televised episode of Shark Tank. We talk about that and some of the business advice he received from the likes of Tim Ferriss and Richard Branson on today's episode. This recording has been remastered uh, to ensure that you're getting the optimal listening experience. And of course, tune in after the interview to hear a bit of an update on what Manish has been doing since we spoke. I promise you don't want to miss that. So let's get started. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Manish Sethi. I'm the founder of Pavlock. We are a behavior company that helps people change their habits. And we released the Pavlock wearable device. It's a device that helps people form good habits and break bad habits using operant and classical conditioning. It can vibrate to reward people for good habits. It integrates with your um, smart apps, IFTTT and, and your daily usage. And it's able to use an electric zap to train away bad habits, including what I think, like for example, nail biting. I believe you broke the nail biting habit using Pavlock. Uh, smoking, unhealthy eating, eating between meals is our big one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, ways of stopping behavior by using uh, a little Pavlovian stimulus. That is quite a cliffhanger to, to leave us on. And we're going to get into what Pavlock uh, is, how it works, and that kind of stuff a little later on. But you have created a product that, like, essentially electrocutes people. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wouldn't say that. Electrocutes <laughs> kill. We give a mild stimulus. Uh, it ranges from from like un, like uh, you notice it like a tap to strong, like you're touching a doorknob. But uh, we try to keep it a little safe. Right. So, <laughs> so you guys call it a, a zap. Yeah. So to get to that point, you've kind of undertaken a, a few really interesting projects uh, over the years. So I want to kind of wind back the clock a few years and talk about some of the early stuff that you've, you've done in your career. Like we can wind back as far as uh, when you're in school and, and you wrote a best-selling book. Yeah, so when I was young, um, I got really into Pokemon actually and I got really into, vi- to, got really into video games and I started um, playing video games in particular this one Age of Empires and I started to like how, that you, how you could like make some scripting code on the back end to, to play, make the AI change. 
So I started reading these these books about how to make video games, and I uh, went to I convinced my parents to buy me a ticket to this extreme game developers conference uh, that was happening when I was 13 years old, in two hours away from my house. Mm-hmm. So we went to this conference. I got to meet my hero there, who had written all these books on game programming, and I posted later. And they had a publishing house where they were opening a new book series on game programming. So I got home and I wrote on my publisher, my hero's forum. Uh, I want to, uh, I, I really enjoy the conference today. I was the youngest one there. Ha ha ha. I'd love to write a book someday, maybe like game programming for kids. That would be really cool. Yeah. And my hero responded and he wrote, I'll never hire anybody who's younger than 25. You're not smart enough. You'll never get the project done. And I don't think you'll do good work, period. And I was like, what the, that was not very nice hero, sir. Wow. It was very harsh. So, yeah. um, I got angry, and then I spent the next four days writing uh, 80 pages of a book. That was essentially the <laughs> initial stages of of the book uh, of yep. how to get a game program. And then I sent it to him. Uh, I sent it above his head, not mentioning that I was a kid, and um, eventually got the book deal. And so I was a 13-year-old kid with a book deal for like a, a lot of money And at that point. And um, I ended up writing the book. And what was crazy was it took off. The book was titled Game Programming for Teens. It took me 80 days to, four days to write the first 80 pages. And then it took me a year to write the next 150 pages. Because yep. I, I didn't have that motivation anymore. Uh-huh. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but so basically, it, it, uh, it took off. It became a huge, uh, one of the top 15 computer books in America. It became um, like 200 on the Amazon list at one point. And it became a textbook in Poland. It was translated in four languages. So it became like a textbook for helping kids in Poland learn yeah. programming, which was awesome. We got to, I get a lot of Polish messages to this day. Mm-hmm. And so from there, that, took, that got me interested in programming. So I started going to, I went to, I went to school, uh, I studied at Stanford, and I got really interested there in, I got really bored by programming, and I got interested in travel. So I did a, a study abroad in Florence, Italy, and I decided to take a couple of years off and travel the world. And in the meantime, I started to blog. Yep. I was really into the four-hour work week digital nomading. Um, but what I found was it was interesting. The same things that had always been plaguing me since I'd been a kid were continuously to pop, continuing to pop up again. Um, the example of me starting to write a book and then finishing 80 pages in the first four days and then 150 pages over the next year, I noticed that that would pop up again and again. When I had a deadline, I would hit goals and I would, I would ace them. But without a deadline, I couldn't succeed. And when I started to travel, I had this idea of passive income, let me build a business that'll make money anywhere. Uh, I don't want to work. I just want to travel. And I found that as it happened, I was unable to build anything larger than myself, and I was unable to motivate myself because I'd set the goals so low. $3,000 a month was a lot. I was making $400 a month uh, per month in India. Total was my total expenses. And when you get to that point that you're just able to survive, I noticed that my drive dropped. And I noticed that my productivity was low. And I felt I'd always been classified as ADHD, um, and I'd been tracking my productivity using this app called Rescue Time for years. So on my blog, I started to embark on a series of experiments. Um, One experiment was set around productivity, and I would track different ways of testing how to feel better and get more done, and then I would measure it against my uh, Rescue Time score. And in one experiment, for example, I made a bet that I would go to the gym every day, or and I would stop eating... Uh, I ate intermittent fasting. I'd go to the gym every day and I did a keto diet for a while. And as soon as the bet was made, I had like almost 100% success rates. So. But if the bet wasn't made, I'd just sit home and like, you know, binge eat on whatever I can possibly uh-huh. find. 
So a second experiment I tested was what if I added a, a coach or a trainer who sat down next to me? And I hired a girl whose job was to sit down next to me, and every time I went on Facebook, she would slap me in the face. This is the, st- this is the, the story of the girl from, uh, from Craigslist. The Craigslist slapping, slapper story. <laughs> and I wrote this post on my blog, yeah. uh, and I was on a plane right after I hit post. I flew from Buenos Aires to, uh, to Boston, or to New York. And as soon as I landed, there was like 30 missed calls on my phone. And I got a call a minute or two later from, uh, from Ollie at NPR, and he's like, is this Mini Sati? The guy who got hired, someone to slap him in the face. And it turns out my post had gone viral in the UK because the word slapper means prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, after it got viral in the UK, it became viral in the US. And so I had missed all the UK calls. And a few weeks later, I was saying to myself, man, it would be cool if we could scale this. Like, obviously it works. It was interesting. What if I made a dog collar that could shock me every time I went on Facebook? Mm -hmm. And my friend said, let's go to Radio Shack. And so we did, and, and like he was smarter than I was. He built, like, he ripped apart a dog collar remote, and in a few minutes, he had built, like, in four or five hours, he had hooked up to this little system, and we made a video where every time I was going on Facebook, it triggered this Arduino unit to zap me. And I was about to post the video online, and then it, I noticed that I, I, it clicked. It was like, there are a thousand wearables out there tracking what we do. This one's actually changing what I do. Maybe there's something here. So that was the big light bulb moment that made me decide to start a hardware company. So there's a couple of themes emerging through here. So there's obviously technology, there's uh, productivity, there's, uh, I guess, self-experimentation. Tim Ferriss is a big proponent of that. You mentioned four-hour work week. I read online on uh, when I was preparing for this that uh, you won a, a Tim Ferriss contest. Yeah, I actually helped. I was the right-hand man for Tim Ferriss's four-hour chef book launch. Cool. So I lived with him for like two or three months how was and, that? And uh, traveled with him as he did the launch. It was cool. He was yeah. a smart, very interesting guy. And then I saw him again when Pavlok won the Shopify Build a Business competition mm-hmm. last year, where we got to go to Necker Island on Richard Branson's private island and spend a week with him, the CEO of Shopify, um, Damon John from Shark Tank, Marie Forleo, and some other cool people. Yep. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, and I like his principles for sure. Yep. So speaking of speaking of islands, Necker Island, um, Richard Branson's private island. You bought a private island. Uh, sort of. Me and a... <laughs> Tell me about that. This is 2013. Um, uh, one of my friends, Tynan, who uh, is, is awesome, he emails me. He's like, yo, you want to get an island? And he and I had been talking about this forever. And there's this website where you can buy islands. And I picked out one, and it was like half a million dollars or something. Someday, some... That's, that's not that much. Yeah, it's way... So Tynan calls up, and for less than 100K, he had found an island that was like on the... Canadian version of Craigslist. It was in Can- it was in Canada, so it was really good for six months of the year, but not good for the other six months of the year. But so Craigslist for, for any Australian listeners is kind of like a, a classified yeah, website, a classified right? Ad. So somebody's selling an island on a classified website, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So he had found it, and then he. I mean, it's property, right? So an island is property. It's nothing crazy. It's just property. And it's just property that happens to be difficult to get to and have some cultural idealism mm-hmm. in some countries. So we found a really good deal, and he, we found 10 people to get in on the deal, so it became extremely affordable. Then uh, it was completely barren. So over the last few years, uh, there's been like five or six trips. I've gone on one where they've, uh, inst- we've installed a yurt, so now we have a big house. Uh, we have Wi-Fi, which is because there's 3G connection. Mm-hmm. We have a boat. We installed a dock, I believe. 
um, and it's taking place. So now I'm able, and it's cool. Like within three within three hours, I can fly direct from here to the nearest airport and then drive there. Mm-hmm. So it's not. I've only. I should go more. Basically, I should go more. That's my summer. It's your private island. <laughs> yeah, it sounds cool. It's it sounds. It's. I think. I think one of the things that you'll see in as a running theme is. Um, the shock factor that's been kind of endemic in my life. Yeah. Everything I've ever done has been for the shock factor ever since I was a kid. And it always sounds better than it is. Yeah. So, like, especially when I was running Hack the System, that was the concept. How to become a famous DJ in Berlin. Uh, we broke into becoming music stars in Berlin by buying Facebook fans and convincing clubs that we were well-known. Mm-hmm. And, like, it seems huger to be a bigger DJ than you are. But once you get there, it's actually just there's hundreds of people DJing. It sounds harder than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with getting a private island. It sounds impossible if you build these barriers in your mind. But if you continuously, and my brain won't shut up, if you continuously ask the question, but what if it were possible? What if I could do that? How would I do that? There's always a way to do something. So if your goal is to buy a private island... If the goal is private island, then look for those specifics. Like, what does that mean to you? Is it mm-hmm. living and having a nice, fancy island? Is that you want to live on it? Or is it you want to say at parties that you have a private island? Yeah. Because that's a completely different metric to go mm-hmm. after. And you can easily do it uh, surprisingly easy. And it works with almost any kind of task. So with, with, with behavior change, which is what I really care about, um, people always ask, like, what's wrong? Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I biting my nails? Why am I on Facebook right now? I don't ask that question. I follow a different methodology of uh, identifying behavior change. And that's find what works and reproduce that until it stops working. Mm -hmm. So I don't care if it's because of your mother or your father or your grandfather or your your your, anybody that you're having a problem. What I do know is that when you're hanging out with people at events with your workplace, you're having a good time. So put yourself in places where you're being with happier people. Mm -hmm. That's a far better solution than trying to spend years and then identifying it's because of someone in your life. So, um, but the same thing, it's like everyone knows that the amount of people when I say I make a wearable that helps you break bad habits, I would say 30% of people instantaneously say, what does it do? Shock you? Mm-hmm. Because we know it works. So if it works, why not reproduce it? I know that when I show up to the gym and there's a gym trainer waiting for me, I will have a good workout. Yep. I know that I have to show up to the gym, which is the hard part. Exercise is the only concept that's in daily routines that's solved the problem of if I get there, my goals are hit. Exercise is one of the very few that has that. But there's no solution yet to the get to the gym part. Uh, so, Iman, you're saying that by virtue of just doing the exercise, you have completed the goal. The yeah, because you're you're... You, if you go to the gym but you walk, you just do a couple things and go home, walk on the treadmill for 10 minutes and walk home, you're not going to have a good workout. Mm-hmm. But if you go to the gym and there's a trainer waiting for you, you will. Also, if there's a trainer waiting for you, you're you wearing more like you're probably yeah. going to go to the gym, right? Yeah. Uh, so setting up those, like, look, I look at it from the opposite angle. How, to solve behavior change, it's not about, I mean, to solve behavior change, find out what works and reproduce it. For me, I know that bets work. I know that bets work. I know that rituals work. I know that um, having someone make me do it and continuously remind me until I do it, and if I don't do it, they win a reward that they get to gloat about me for, works wonders. Mm-hmm. So uh, the hard part is, like, everyone knows that it's funny, actually, the bet thing. Like, betting someone to go to the gym. Hey, I bet, I'll give you 10 bucks if I don't go to the gym tomorrow. There's some very deep difficulty with trying to say those words out of your mouth. But once they're said, it's like freedom. Mm. Uh, and so my goal is to, uh, at Pavlock, our goal is to change 5 million bad habits in five years. Mm-hmm. Starting 2017, by the end of 2022, we want to have measurably changed 5 million bad habits. 
And so our biggest focus right now is on tracking the most habits that we possibly can. And uh, next quarter, we begin implementing different methods of changing habits. Uh, so the behavior change for with Pavlox, like current haptic feedback of electric zap and vibration is one way. But I also know that winning rewards for hitting your goals is another way. And I know that setting up bets where you can win money if you do go to the gym, but you'll lose money if you don't, and you win money from the people in the Pavlov community who yep. failed, will create a really in- interesting infrastructure for habit change. I'm sure you've heard of the, uh, the app called Pact. Yeah, which, no Pact and no yeah. stick. Yeah, so we're building, uh, so we're building uh, the features of Pact into our product. Sure, sure. Um, and so you can use that for all habits rather than just, just going to the gym or fitness related, right? Mm-hmm. So, if, so Pact, if you're not aware, it's um, essentially an app that you, you bet the community how many times you're going to go to the gym in the following week. Um, and you bet, you know, 5 or $10 or $20 per session. And in each session you miss, you have to pay that money. If you do complete them all, you get winnings from the people who uh, lost money. So it's a kind of a, an interesting theory. And uh, it's I a stock market on yourself going to the gym. It is. It's yeah, putting, it's, buying, it's, <laughs> it's putting it's putting down bets on you going to the gym. Yeah, you're betting on yourself. Yeah, actually, um, if you look at like uh, this is a whole different discussion. I was just going to say if you look at like all of the biggest monetary growth companies of the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. All of them took some normal concept and then built a betting marketplace on it. Mm-hmm. Every single one. It's like face. That's not true. Not every single one. Just many of them. Facebook did it with Facebook ads. It's a bidding system. Mm-hmm. Google did it with Google ads. It's a bidding system. Uh, Apple did it with iTunes Store originally, and then they did it with their ads in uh, in iTunes. Mm-hmm. It's a bidding system. So the uh, creating a marketplace upon uh, Bitcoin is the best example of mm-hmm. creating a bidding system on on BS to create value. Uh, it's magic. But uh, that, that, that was a side note, and we shouldn't talk about it, but it's sure. fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> with the, the pact thing, and, and, and what you'll probably start to see with Pavlok going forward, is people respond much more strongly to a negative stimulus than they do to a positive one, like factors of 10 more strongly. And, and there's a range of like psychological studies that kind of back that up and why which I'm sure you're much more well-versed in than I am. But um, I wanted to ask, just to, to kind of finish up the, the section on your background before we really dive into Pavlok and what it is and how it works, this hack the system. Um, you said, you know, you, you wrote uh, for a while and you, you were doing kind of a range of experiments. So what, kind of what was the purpose of it and, and what did you learn from it? So Hack the System was my blog for four years that I, ra- I ran while traveling the world. Uh, it was uh, subtitled, Hack the system, cheat codes for life. And we gave different hacks in different categories. So there was um, productivity hacks. There was fitness exercise hacks. There was, um, there was social hacks, which was like becoming a famous DJ uh, or learning languages rapidly. Travel hacks, which was the core, how to get free plane tickets and free hotels anywhere in the world and offices. And then there was one other section, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I, I, basically, it's an outgrowth of my brain. I'm severely, severely ADHD and I have no ability to like stick to a concept. And if you look at my like blog or you look at my, if you look at Pavlok really, it's like watching an outgrowth of like all of these different branches of ideas and things that I get started on without any kind of final loop or completion. So a great example of that is Hack the System. I haven't written an article in over, over a year and a half and yet the email forum is still up. And I think I probably get 60 to 70 email subscribers a day on that site because I get at least two or three people emailing me a day saying it's down. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't updated it in like a year and a half. So like, and like, so that kind of example of like, hey, I finished this. Oh, I, I didn't close the loop. I'm just say, hey, here's, an, like, go to pavlot.com. Let me set up a redirect. Like that sort of, <laughs> that sort of like, 
That's sort of like my mind. You're like the perfect test subject for this whole thing that you're going um, through. So for Pavlock, I, I, yeah. I, everyone everyone thinks that like I'm trying to build. This is funny, but it's like uh, I get a lot of people thinking like, "Hey, you're trying to build a product that really helps people." I like that you're testing it with other people and with yourself to see if you can help others. And I'm like, "No, no, no, you don't understand." I'm trying to build a product to get me to fucking get my shit done. Yeah. So I'm testing it on all of you <laughs> so that I know the perfect solution to solve it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, <laughs> I'm just like, like this, uh, I've noticed the smallest thing. Like, it's all about behavior. I really find human behavior fascinating. And I find it extremely fascinating because animal behavior is extremely close to human behavior. But there's a mindset issue when you approach humans, but people think that they're not animals. And it's fascinating when you start treating yourself like an animal and notice that your thoughts are separate than your actual being and that there are different places in your body that are competing for each other. And consciousness is a choice. Mm-hmm. And for most of your day, you're unconscious. And learning to train how to use that power of um, manipulating feelings, emotions, sensations is really powerful. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the core of the only reason, the only thing that makes sense is if you have a foundation in understanding um, your emotions and senses, but also your personality, who you are. Uh, I, th- I would say that from a personal standpoint, Pavlok has helped me grow a lot because I understood and it only started to help me grow when I understood my own personality type mm-hmm. and how I work and that I had been, that the world in America is designed for this one specific type of personality and realizing that I was outside of the box and that I have other strengths, that ADHD was actually a superpower was really one of the biggest mindset shifting things that I could have done. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned, you know, the difference between humans and animals there. And I, I, as you were talking through that, I, I was kind of thinking we are very similar to animals in in many ways uh, until it comes to all these biases that we hold when we make decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, behavior is really just a manifestation of all of our um, decisions. So the way you act is is based on what's going on in your head. And And we just, we have all these like, stupid shit that we do like the the sunk cost fallacy where we where we place emphasis on things that have happened before or money that we've already invested into something or there's a list of like 50 to 100 like yeah, yeah that's i lost my favorite page on yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. of just like these cognitive oh, yeah, humans biases are, yeah and but uh but i would argue that animals exhibit them just as much as humans do there's a really famous example of cognitive biases that was done i believe on it was done on a newspaper uh, website and basically they put up the price of the digital version as like thirty nine ninety five and the price of the of the di- of the print version as seventy nine ninety five mm-hmm. and nobody bought the print version everybody bought the digital and then they offered digital for thirty nine ninety five print for seventy nine ninety five print plus digital for seventy nine ninety five yep and everybody said Wait, what the heck these are the same price that must yep. be a mistake let me get the let me get the seven nine ninety five one. So the 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 it's like having um the expensive bottle of wine makes you buy the cheaper bottle of wine. Yeah, that's there, right. That that study, by the way, was um there's a there's a TED talk by Dan Ariely where he talks about it. I'll I'll link it up. Cool. Um, there's a a type of fungus that grows on plants, uh, and it's hard to see with the naked eye, but sometimes you can. And they they're like single cell organisms, and when they get together, they create this slime. Mm-hmm. Scientists found out that they really hate UV light, and they really like oats. They'll move towards it, what they like, and they move away from what they don't like. And if you put enough of them in a circle, they congeal, and then you can see the whole thing moving. Mm -hmm. And they noticed that when they put, uh, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, so bear with me. uh, 
It's going to be something along the exact same lines of the previous study. So it's like they had a 39, a 79, and a 79. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had a, uh, a, like a one oat, one gram oat, and then like a three gram oat, and then a three gram oat with light. No, a one gram oat with light. It was like that. One gram sure. oat with light, one gram oat, no light, and then a three gram oat with light. Whereas it used to 50-50 split, yeah. it would always go to the one that had uh, that changed because of the because of the extra option. Mm-hmm. It was built into the cells, mm. and I find this interesting because it's it, you see uh, like yogurt knows yogurt and fungus knows fungus. Like they act they act together and they do things as like a, a democracy. And in our brains, it's extremely similar. We think that we are we. We think that we are ourselves, but we're not. We are a bunch of different neurons and a bunch of different genes that were created for differing purposes that all congealed in this one body. And when you look under the under um, fMRI machines, they've shown that when people are asked to press a button and they they press the button, the decision is made seconds before they think that they press the button. That consciousness comes after the execution has happened. Mm-hmm. That being said, I started to look at myself not as a human being, but as a collection of neurons, and that I can adjust them in the right way and do the right behaviors. To, uh, Taking a third-person perspective of my own personal body, that I'm not me and that voice in my head, most importantly, is not me. That voice in my head is just a voice. In the 1600s and 1700s, that voice was classified as uh, as as uh, Satan or as demons. Mm-hmm. And people were taught to not listen to the voices in their head. And only in the last 75 to 100 years, particularly in the Western world in America, have we been trained to believe that that voice in our head is us, the real us. By recognizing that it's... That's who I most listen to, so... <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it can be good if that voice is cool, but if that voice is yeah. a dick, you shouldn't listen to that voice. Yeah, 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 sure. And that's, you know, where people like deal with depression and things like that as well, so... That voice that keeps talking is just a habit. Everything that we do that is automatic is just a habit. And the way to train it is to either... Ch- is, is, is to change the behavior mm-hmm. by uh, substituting with a new habit. We found a lot of users would use the Pavlock by, for negative thoughts, um, or often for getting over their ex. Yeah. By whenever they have a negative thought, they'd zap themselves twice, smile, and do something else. Mm-hmm. We had this one girl who um, she was depressed, and she said, "Can Pavlock help me with depression?" And I said, "I don't know. I don't think Pavlock has any ability to change uh, dopamine and serotonin levels in the brain. And, uh, but I do believe that a lot of habit is just a, a lot of." Uh, depression is a continuously negative thought thinking process and that a better way to fix this might be for us to just do the five-day program for the next five days whenever you find yourself being sad zap yourself twice smile and text me where you are Mm -hmm. on day one she caught herself at work on day two she caught herself on the way to work on day three she caught herself reaching for the front door Mm -hmm. day four front door day five front door i said what's up with your front door there was a vase a flower vase sitting there that when she was 16 she and her twin sister had a birthday party. Mm-hmm. All these people came and gave gifts, and her sister got like 20 gifts, and she got nothing. Mm-hmm. And her sister said, here, have this. And that vase was triggering these thoughts of nobody loves me, nobody cares. That became a pattern as she went on her drive to work that became her daily routine. She removed the vase, and the next day she texted me at 4 p.m. She's like, I haven't been sad at all. Mm-hmm. It was like a trigger that was a fake trigger. So we found that the, uh, what, we're, what we can do is help people be aware when you use the Pavlock, it zaps you into prefrontal cortex in the present activity yeah. and lets you notice and associate that with, with what's going on, with the triggers that are causing your behavior. So do you think that she was noticing 
the vase every day, but she just didn't like it. Just it just didn't trigger in her mind until yeah. like later in the morning. And then the next day, she caught herself earlier because she's paying more attention. And then she's paying more attention the next day, so she earlier and earlier and earlier. Part of it's about paying attention. Part of it is that the zap creates a sensory experience yep. that causes a memory. I'm sure you can think of multiple times that you've been zapped mm-hmm. and remember where you were. Like think about the first time, you'll probably remember it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a it's classified as an emotional experience, which mm-hmm. is interesting. But it's a powerful way to to create memories. A good trick is zap yourself when you're learning someone's name, and you won't forget their name. Did you do that when we uh, said hello today? No. So I have a funny <laughs> story about that. We were the reason I don't promote it too much is because I used it every day for six months. Yeah. And I got my name recognition up to like really high. Mm-hmm. But after about six months, the zap wore off for me. So we're like. If we recommend this to our users, we're going to kill our user base. Let us study what we're doing before okay. we tell users to zap themselves for every everything. Um, but yeah, so um, we've kind of danced around it for a little while. Let's let's dive into Pavlock. Sure. Um, so you gave a bit of a summary up top. What what is it? So it's a, it's a wearable device. What is it, and, and how does it work? Sure. So we're undergoing a quite a bit of a transition at Pavlock, but Pavlock, the company, is a company that helps people change their habits. We have one number that we measure at the company, one KPI, and that number is number of habits changed. Mm -hmm. And we focus purely on building the world's best tracking systems and influence systems to help people change behavior for good. But what we we have sold and what we sell is we've released a wearable device called the Pavlock. And the Pavlock is designed uh, to be a habit breaker. When you use it manually with no app connection, it's a classical conditioning tool known as an aversive conditioning device. Mm-hmm. It helps you create a negative association with a bad habit that you do by uh, associating them and doing them at the same time. Sure. So the five-day quit a bad habit process, which I believe you did, for five days you do the bad habit on purpose, you zap yourself while you do it, and your brain will create an association. You're going to want to put the, the cigarette down or stop biting your nails, but you force yourself to continue to do it. And uh, by the day that you think that you quit smoking or quit biting your nails or quit whatever... Do it for two more days to kill the habit dead in the brain, and then you're good. That's uh, you want to tell about your experience using the Pavlock? Yeah, so so I did the the five day um, process, but I think I actually got the most benefit out of it by um, just trying to catch myself throughout the throughout life. So, um, did you notice finding yourself more aware after you did a session or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- that was the, the the first thing that I noticed was that. Um, the habit I was trying to change was stop biting my nails. So I noticed as I started to zap myself throughout the day, I became more aware of like how often I was biting yeah. my nails. Now, I was trying to look for a pattern in when I was doing it, whether it was that I was bored or whether I was... And I, I, To this day, I still didn't really nail what that what that trigger was or posture. if there was a trigger. I don't know, maybe... Create posture could be sitting next to something, but it doesn't matter if you've got it done. So it doesn't matter. Who, who gives a shit why? Exactly. You, right? you solved the problem. So, so this is what you are talking about <laughs> before, right? Like... It'd be interesting to know, but does does it actually matter? So probably not. Once once the, with, with, when you, you've you, achieved the goal, right? When you do the five minute session and you do it manually while you do a bad habit, you're you're hitting a different part of the brain. Mm-hmm. You're doing a classical conditioning aversion technique, mm-hmm. and that's different than like operant conditioning habit loop a trigger action reward. It's like when you um, if you if you ever got ever got food from somewhere and then there was like a, a, a cockroach in it. And then, like, for the rest of your life, you can never eat at that place ever again. That's because your brain creates disgust mm-hmm. in a way that's deeper than any sort of habit loop. And we've created a way for people to, to manually instill disgust mm-hmm. for behaviors. And it sounds weird, but it's what it is. 
So essentially, like, just to kind of paraphrase what's happening is, say you're trying to quit smoking, you, you're smoking and you, you zap yourself while days, you're smoking, yeah. right? And you, uh, you, the, the idea is you want to be aware of the moment. And so we, we have these audio courses. You're focusing and meditating upon the behavior and creating a sensation of disgust within you. Imagine the blackness of the smoke entering your lungs and zzz. Imagine how bad it smells to other people that they have to suffer for your zzz. Imagine missing your daughter's graduation and you try to create this like, you create these like imagery that make you feel and associate disgust together with the sensation. There's different, uh, many users simply use the manual mode by pressing the button. Yes. Adding any extra sensory awareness here helps. So getting yourself to watch it. One thing that I've been testing that's fun is in front of a mirror, I noticed it helps a lot. So I built a drone, I took my drone and I flew it and I had it look at me and I was zapping not me, but that guy in the image. Sure. And it like really startled me. Yeah. And it felt like I was training that, that a-hole and that a-hole stopped liking it, but it was me. It was like a really weird sensation. Ah, so you're like looking at yourself through the drone, like a little yeah. test subject in a... <laughs> yeah, sure. What's happening is it's like uh, you start to associate this negative stimulus with a particular habit. So you'd say, again, it's smoking. Do you think it's that um, the that the shock uh, is or the zap is changing the chemical balance in your brain or... Everything changes the, the chemical balance in your brain to some degree, but... So, yes, sure, for sure it is. Everything you do is changing. But, like, is that the, is that the crux of why it works, you think? No, no. I think the crux of why it works... Okay, so... Well, it's a complete, like, so we're talking, we've, we've talked about the classical conditioning manual technique. The second side of it is uh, the operant conditioning. So the, it becomes a reminder tool, notifications, a smart device. When you pair it with your phone, it's able to, we have a, a Pavlock app for iOS and Android that allows you to create um, habits and helps remind you to do those habits, helps you form good behaviors. And we also have an API where we have an app store with other apps like the Chrome productivity extension sure. that limits you from opening too many tabs or helps you stop going on Facebook. Those are cl- uh, operant conditioning techniques, getting punished and rewarded through automation. Mm-hmm. And so that also really works to help train behavior. We've noticed something really interesting. Um, if you get zapped for going to Facebook the way it currently is in the app, do you use the Chrome extension? I did. Uh, I stopped using it, but I did use it. Got it. So you type in Facebook and you hit enter and then the page loads and then you get zapped. Mm-hmm. If you change that timing to be as soon as they type in F-A-C-E zap in the URL bar, mm-hmm. the, the behavior goes away much more rapidly. Sure. And that makes sense if it's an operant conditioning technique, that the speed between when doing the behavior. And yeah, and so we're finding that, um, so right now, like, I think what I want to build here with the Pavlock product is a wearable device that connects through your device that, that can, basically is able to track all the behaviors that you want to change and help mm-hmm. you change them. Mm-hmm. The, end, the end goal, the core vision of the company, all we care about is that every human being who says, I want to do this or I don't want to do this, does it or doesn't do it anymore and they have zero chance of failure. That's what we focus on. Mm-hmm. How, if, we can, if we can get me to sit down and like, like uh, do one thing at a time and focus, we can solve it for anybody. And so, you know, the, the way I look at it is... Uh, if people are trying to quit doing drugs and they say, well, I go home and someone's doing, like, every time I go home, I get sad, I go to a bar. Every time, well, what if you're with someone, what if you're with someone 24 hours a day? Mm-hmm. What if they're with someone 24 hours a day who's like, don't do this or else, don't do this or else? They might actually change their behavior very rapidly. Mm-hmm. If we can help them by, like, by helping them associate new contexts and helping them form good habits, which are typically the first step, you'll notice that things start to, to drop that bad habits start to drop rapidly once good keystone habits are added. Sure. 
But if you are at that last drop where a minute of, of alcohol or like, you know, you might get in trouble for if you're really trying to quit an addiction for good, like smoking, we're here to be your partner mm-hmm. and be there with you 24 hours a day. So our goal is simply to make sure that you can't fail. And we're doing whatever we can to make that happen. Yeah, you went on Shark Tank recently. Yeah. And I think it was Mark Cuban, uh, I guess in a way, accused you of selling snake oil. Like he was kind of calling the product a sham. Yeah, it was very, very fascinating to watch that. Uh, basically, um, I, we have uh, compiled a bunch of evidence that had sh- uh, from experiments that were done in the 70s through the 90s that showed how, uh, actually through the 2000s, that showed the efficacy of electric shock for helping people quit bad habits and addictions. Mm-hmm. We discovered studies that showed that over 50% of people would, help, would quit smoking if doing an aversive se- uh, conditioning session. So I presented the evidence. That's what science is. Science is taking old evidence and using it and adjusting it to fit to fit the future. And Mark Cuban went crazy, and he claimed that uh, I was cl- citing other evidence as my own or using other evidence as my own and lying about doing studies. The document I gave him had citations for every single every single page. Um, and what had happened it was it was watching the I watched the room's vibe change. The way I describe it is that you've seen Lion King. Mm. Mark Cuban is, is Mufasa, Mr. Wonderful is Scar, and the other three are the hyenas. Mm-hmm. And so like they were all excited about the product, but then Mark Cuban made it a defensive battle. And as soon as he did so, they uh, all the other three who were extremely excited dropped out. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wonderful was there like Scar, offering me, a ter- uh, offering me a deal. I turned him down because he has... Uh, he's not a nice person. I can't really say much more than that because Shark Tank won't, legal won't let me talk about it. But... Sure. He's not. Look up. Um, Kevin O'Leary wants 3.5 billion people to live in poverty on YouTube, and you'll see what I mean. So yeah, and and so Mark Cuban was like, he was quite aggressive. Like he got very, very aggressive. Like you know, red in the face, and yeah, it was, it was a pretty tense, pretty tense episode. Yeah, it didn't go how I wanted it to, but it is what it is. In saying that, though, like I'm sure a lot of that was also cut for television. Um, yeah, so they cut. To make it seem very. Yeah, it's 45 uh, minutes. They cut it down to eight minutes. They cut out a lot. 45 of, minute pitch. Yeah, and they wow. cut out a lot of my evidence. Like I, I cited some studies that we yeah. had conducted. Yeah. And they just cut it out for good. So it made yeah, it well, because like it doesn't make good. So TV, Mark, right? Mark, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Mark Cuban had been like, "You don't have any studies to prove this," and I was like, "Yes, actually, we we conducted one at UMass Boston." They just cut it out. Yeah. So, like, it wasn't quite fair. Uh, it wasn't a fair fight, but it is what it is. Well, that's the risk you take going on Shark Tank, right? Yeah. And, and look, uh, from from what I saw uh, online after that, it looks like you guys got a lot of um, publicity and, and a lot more interest into the product after that anyway, despite the fact that maybe it didn't go how you wanted. Yeah, it's fine. It is what it is. We, we, we're doing great. It was another marketing angle. We were in the New York Times that same month, yeah. uh, and we grossed three times as much as we made from Shark Tank. So it was just another thing. We were in the BBC, you know, it's just another thing. We make a device that is inherently viral and is really helping people. Mm. And so Shark Tank failed. Oh, well. Yep. In fact, I looked at it as a kind of an opportunity because it's like, it's just like my old hero when I was a kid moment. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Shark Tank says we can't do it. And in fact, that was filmed in September and I'd asked for half a million dollars and we grossed about that last month. And so right. I would have had to pay him back because he asked for a loan. I would have had to pay him back two hundred and seventy-five thousand ish dollars by now, mm-hmm. and that would have been that. That doesn't sound good to me. So <laughs> instead, we've made that much. We've been able to gross. Um, we're profitable now. We're profitable. 
So congratulations. Fuck. <laughs> that's it. So fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a that's an important moment in a startup. Yeah, it's a rare moment, and it's only rare if you take funding. Like I noticed this. I used to be a. Uh, I came into the world like thinking I would need to do a Series A and a Series B. Yeah. And I learned that there's a magical thing called growing a business profitably, and that in fact it's called bootstrapping, right? Yeah. It doesn't happen very often anymore. Yeah, and right? I did. That, and like to say that is an exaggeration. I, I raised uh, oh, about six hundred thousand dollars in total. Yeah. Um, but for a hardware company, that's very small. But to be fair, I would not have been able to be here had I not raised half sure. a million and gotten all this lucky help. So, you know, I'm coming from the angle of, hey, I got here with a bunch of support and you guys should just do what I did, which is not true. If you're trying to build a hardware company, most people will probably need to raise money if you're trying to build. uh, But like the mentality that you have to raise money to build a business is very bad. Uh, Out of the top 500 high growth companies in Inc. Magazine, it was uh, 16% of them had ever raised venture capital. 84% of the top 500 high growth companies didn't. But you don't read about them in TechCrunch. No one's reporting their profitability numbers. Mm-hmm. You only hear about the big business deals that get made because they're legally required to be public, and they make you sound big. So, what are those companies? Are they working on software or like is there software, a, is, hardware, plumbing? Is uh, there? A, I guess what I'm asking, given that you're the kind of the the guy who experiments and observes things, and you sort of pick like what what is the common thread between those companies that haven't taken oh, funding that yeah that, they they are high growth. High-growth companies typically, I mean, okay, so I don't know, all, out of the 500 companies, there's going to be a lot of things that are sure. different. But if you look at most of the top, um, there's a book called The Outsiders, which talks about the top CEOs and uh, what they all have in common uh, in history. And based on their, their math, um, the top CEOs are, companies are run in a way that is decentralized, numbers are, are set and hit, and the, the, the center office has very few people in it. And money is used as a, typically they stay in the same industry, but expand in reproducible business units. So a really good example of top companies are like, uh, ABC was one of the top eight companies. They started off as just one little news station. They grew to two news stations and then they had in the center company like eight or nine people forever. And then they had a system for making different news stations around the country profitable. Yeah. So they would buy a news station, KTLA Sacramento or KTN whatever city. And then they would give their they would give that person who they bought, he became the CEO of the company. He had to hit these specific goals that were KPI metrics. If he hit those goals, Central would never ABC Central would never call him. Yeah. If he didn't hit the goals then there's going to be a problem. And what happened was they were able to reproduce it so fast that they were able to do 50 to 60 new stations a day. Mm-hmm. They were buying 50 to 60 new stations a day and training them to, to run a profitable. That's ridiculous. But it's not because the system is very, it's like, uh, the, there's nothing like as we were building up our company, we're designing processes and workflows. And the, like, the thing that gets me like excited is when I go into like an out, like a, like a Burger King or McDonald's and they have that thick operations manual on yeah. the wall. How the hell does McDonald's open? 3,000, 4, I don't know how many they open, like 100 a day. Who knows what they open? But um, maybe they're closing right now, but who knows what they do? But they've opened mil- millions. And so how do they do it? They have a very systematic process that's decentralized with uh, very clear roles and very f- clear guidelines. And so when I look at the big companies or the successful companies, the idea of VC is uh, let's throw it all at the wall and hope we're a Facebook or a Google. Mm-hmm. There's probably 10 companies max you can list off your uh, uh, list that are successfully liquidated VC companies. Yep. Like even Airbnb and Uber are not liquid. 
Uh, and so they're not real. It's not real money. They can't mm. use that money in any way. Yep. And so when you look at when you look at that and you start, it makes no sense to me to go celebrate a closing a Series A investment by having a party where you're buying all the drinks. It makes no sense. It's like it happens every time. My friends throw a Series A party, and you go. And of course, I'm going to go. They're fun. But like you go there, and they just close a one million dollar round, and they're spending five thousand dollars or two thousand dollars on an open bar. Yeah. And I'm like, are you? You just took debt. Yeah. Why are you? It's not free money. It's debt. <laughs> it's got to be paid back somehow in some way. And so, uh, to me, I feel like that's uh, a big mindset shift that helped me realize it changed everything. At the company. This was fairly recent, where I was like, this is stupid. Why do I keep lying and extending like the time it's going to take for us to raise a Series A? What if instead I just said we're going to find other ways to reward our employees than this BS equity idea mm-hmm. where you receive money only in two cases if the company goes public or if it is sold to another company. Mm-hmm. I don't intend to sell the company to another company. I don't want to. This is going to be uh, my legacy if it all works out, or at least a giant asset. Yeah. And so uh, with that in mind, what's another way to, to, to reward employees that's more in line with what's fair? And so I think that that, that question needs to be asked. We have our own answer. Um, we, but other people have their own answers. So, This episode of Mate was made possible thanks to Open Universities Australia. With Open Unis, you now have the flexibility of studying single module postgraduate units from leading Australian universities without having to enrol in an entire degree. So this is perfect if you're a busy professional, um, you don't have to go to night school or anything like that. This is a brand new initiative that Open Unis has created, which allows you to upskill for your current role or maybe take the first steps towards a new one. And they have a really broad range of subjects that you can learn about. Things like technology essentials for managers or financial decision making. Or perhaps if you just want to learn something new, maybe you could study cyber terrorism and information warfare or democracy and dictatorship. There's over 100 units to choose from on topics from business to economics, technology, media to law. There's so many more. So instead of going to night school, why not work in a way that's flexible for you? Uh, You can work in your own time and learn about some really fascinating topics. To find out more about how to study a single unit from a leading Australian university with Open Universities Australia, head to open.edu.au. And thank you very much to Open Unis for your support of Mate. The business success of Pavlock. So, like, what you kind of alluded to it there, and, and like, where are you looking to take it in the future? So, again, we've we've made a uh, a different a different decision that revenue would not be our key number. It, I believe that's a false metric mm-hmm. for most companies, and that the metric- as long as you're you make profit, right? Like you can't just be hemorrhaging money. Well, because so. we're not raising a huge round, yeah. we have we can't be. There's no physical way sure. to do so. If you refuse to take a series A, there's a uh, how do you explain this? I should start writing. There's like so much shit that I got to talk about, but it's impossible <laughs> to get it out. Uh, it's like when you start building a hardware company, you, uh, everything starts to change. The concept of money becomes very different. Uh, money before to me was like I have this much in the bank, I can buy this many things. But when you start running a hardware company where you have suppliers, you have uh, vendors, you have distributors, and you have customers, mm-hmm. and they all pay you at different times, yep. which is the most critical thing here, sometimes you get your money up front from customers who buy it on your website. 
but from Amazon, you get it 60 days later. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your factory charges you up front, but you don't get the money till later. But if you, uh, once you start to see all these, uh, this is a really hard problem to solve. But understanding that cash becomes a flow and not a thing mm-hmm. is a big, is a big uh, mindset shift. It's like learning recursion in programming class. Um, but your question was where to go with a monetary success. Because you're starting to be more successful financially. We're, starting, we're profitable, we're, we're profitable but we're not profitable enough to scale at the rate that I would like to. Sure. But if you have a lot of money, like some companies in Boston, you'll start buying ad space. You sp- money, money likes to move. And if you have a lot of money, it, it flows. So you'll spend it on stuff, and some stuff won't be trackable, and some stuff is like getting two people who could have done one person's job. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have money, you got to scrounge. And we've been dead broke forever, and we're just barely not dead broke anymore, mm-hmm. but not enough to double or triple our work staff or anything like sure. that. Um, but we're a good place to be to we be have a ma- efficient, right? Yeah, but but we actually have there's a mathematical formula. The question that like startup companies never ask is, when are you fully capitalized? When do you have enough money that you don't need to to raise more? And um, we're following this guideline, this book called Scaling Up. And the answer is, when your gross pro- so you're profitable and you have a gross profit percentage of fifteen per- of ten to fifteen percent, that's when you are a fully capitalized company. Good job, you're kicking ass. You have enough money in the bank, all debts are paid off, and you have 15% profit each month. Now, the secret to scaling up without uh, in, in, in an organic, powerful way is to get yourself profitable to 15%, then spend enough money to hire new, new employees to drop that number down to 10%. Mm-hmm. Those new employees will bring value to the company and help you increase your profit up back to 15%. Mm-hmm. Then you drop it down to 10% again, and you continue to do that as you build up your, your lump money in the bank. Yep. And what will happen is that you'll build a scalable business. So our goal right now is simply to get like, so right now there's a baseline of cash that you need to have. And we are very close. And with that baseline in mind, now we can start hiring a few more employees at a time. But the big issue is what metric are you aiming at with an organization? Mm-hmm. Most organizations will choose revenue because that's how it's done. And in fact, that's how it's legally required in like the public company space. Sure. Yep. But what I've, I call this a false metric because what happens, and audio listeners can't quite hear this, but I'm drawing in the air. There's like, if, if there's a point that you're trying to solve for, let's say you want to connect the world or you want to organize the world's data or you want to help people um, become photographers or you want to build the world's best furniture, right? What will happen is that you'll, like, the company will choose, choose an arbitrary goal, typically revenue. And so here's the real goal. It's a point up and to the left. And then they start aiming at it by going for revenue. And they get close. So like year two, year three, they get pretty close to that goal. But they, but they end up passing by it because revenue stops being less relevant mm-hmm. than the connecting the world. I'm not saying Facebook is bad, but like the, the other companies. Yep. And so what we decided to do is to focus purely on that specific metric of number of habits changed. Our goal being 5 million bad habits changed in the next five years. In all cases, profitability is paramount. So in all of our big endeavors, we have to be making sure that they break even or profitable. But by aiming at the number of habits changed, we want to be able to change uh, mathematically five million people in five years. And by the end of the, by the end of the, by the time I die, addiction should be completely clean. I want to cure addiction. I, I think that Pavlik has a chance. Uh, but that's our big, very audacious goal. Who knows if we'll get there? But it's the end goal. Yeah, that's, that's that is a bold goal, though. That's what it is. You've spent some time with some pretty prolific business leaders like Tim Ferriss and Richard Branson you spoke about earlier. What, what's the one piece of advice that you think um, you would take from, from all of those people? Some of the best advice I ever got was from Seth Godin. And he, uh, he told me, 
about I was talking about he's a Pavel, genius, by the way. He's a genius. He was on the island. Um, he was telling me about how um, I was talking about Pavlock and how we did like we were a device that breaks bad habits, but we also help people, you know, experience memory and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, stop talking. <laughs> He's like, let me draw you. He drew me the, 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 uh, the standard deviation parabola, you know, the standard bell curve. Yep. And he said, here are early adopters, 10% of people. Here is average users, 80% of people. Here are people who are old adopters. Like yep. And he said, down here in the early adopter stage, uh, uh, he said, "The people here are the ones who might be bu- who are like buying Pebble, who are buying the newest tech. The people in the center are still using taxis or just barely using Uber. And most people th- and other, other the, the laggers are, st- are your VCR users. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, the thing is, people think that the secret is to get the early adopters to adopt, and then they're going to tell their friends who pass it on to the masses. That's not true. That's never been true. It will probably never be true." The the masses do not like early adopters. The early adopters make them feel stupid. Mm-hmm. The secret is to simplify your message and tell the story properly to the to the mass audience. Mm-hmm. Uber did it by deleting all of their integrations, deleting their API, deleting the stories, and making it simple. Press a button, car shows up. Mm-hmm. He and so Seth Godin said, "You have a magic product. You should be selling this as a very simplified system. Press the button, and the craving goes away. Mm-hmm. Press the button, reduce temptation." And we found that uh, as soon as we made that change, two interesting things happened. First, our sales increased. Secondly, uh, our demographic shifted to be mostly women for quite a long time. And so right now it's back to 60, 40 men. But mm-hmm. uh, that was probably the most interesting advice that I've gotten. I like it. I like it. What is exciting you right now? Today we built this little um, DJing music, little bits integration with Pavlock. That's really cool. I'm pretty excited by that. <laughs> Which is totally useless. Uh, I mean, you can, play music. Like, you can play music with it. Beyond like entertainment purposes, right? Like it's not achieving any like. Yeah, I mean, well, stuff. I've always wanted to build uh, Pavlock as like a um, DJing tool so you can play vibrations to the crowd. And now that I, I just saw it play music, yeah, cool. I just saw it play music and light up so it could also play music at the same time uh-huh. in the crowd. So now I'm like, damn, now I've got to think cool. about this. But um, what am I excited for besides that? Uh, we launched a new app today that's the, Poke, uh, Pav- the Pavlock floating browser it lets you play pokemon go and use a floating browser at the same time and we're releasing our app to the uh our pavlock app out next week and uh, most importantly our final full app will be out in about a month and a half and that's exciting awesome this was heaps of fun heaps of fun thanks a lot thanks so much right no worries So time for a bit of an update. I reached out to Manish to check in with him about what's happened since we last spoke. And it's actually been kind of interesting because I've been observing Manish and, and kind of what's been happening in his business and the way he's been approaching things over that time. As you'll know from listening to this episode, he copped quite a bit of flack from uh, Mark Cuban in that episode of Shark Tank. And he still consistently deals with a lot of abuse online from, you know, people calling him a bit of a snake oil salesman, um, people thinking that Pavlok is is a bit of a scammy business. And it's been really fascinating to watch how Manish is dealing with that. In fact, in a weird and kind of unexpected way, Manish has been embracing the haters um, and almost like hugging the trolls. There's this great example that I saw recently where... Somebody was getting stuck into Manish on one of his YouTube videos 
and he uh, he responded in this really empathetic and really warm and uh, and kind of caring way, um, kind of asking them, you know, is, is there something wrong? Can I help you? And it was fascinating to watch this this comment thread turn from this really you know, controversial and filled with animosity and kind of descend uh, as it went on into this, you know, almost like friendly exchange. So, it's been really, really interesting to watch that take place. So, I guess it's uh, fair to say that Manish has figured out some ways to deal with the, uh, the personal and the kind of PR side of things a little better. On the business front, Pavlok has just concluded their third crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Uh, this time, they were selling the Pavlok 2, of which they raised $140,000 for, which is pretty incredible. Um, of course, the Pavlok 2 has a number of new features and, and updates. Um, they've got new you know, wristbands. Um, they've got new accessories. They're updating the iPhone and Android apps to, to better reflect this new kind of visual design that they're building. But the really interesting update that Pavlok 2 has is that uh, it's going to automatically track gestures, actions, and behaviors that you do throughout the day. And essentially, that is to alert you when you're about to do a bad habit. So, they're using things like the accelerometer and a range of other kind of sensors and, and, um, and data points to figure out when you might be about to engage in a bad habit and to kind of flag it for you before you do... And of course, encourage you uh, to engage in positive good habits. And then uh, finally, I wanted to uh, let you know about this really kind of interesting uh, development that they've uh, they've been working on. It's almost like a, a virtual currency. I'm going to let Manish explain it personally. He does a better job of it here. We have created an in-app point system called Volts. And these Volts are an in-app currency where you earn points, you earn currency for doing healthy, positive habits. And you are able to use those points to unlock new features and unlock new apps. And I'm really excited about that because this begins the creation of our positive reinforcement uh, into the Pavlok ecosystem. So, uh, in summary, it's great to see Pavlok expanding and, uh, and doing interesting projects and initiatives in different areas. Of course, on their mission to, uh, to rid the world of bad habits. And of course, Manish is being his usual, interesting, controversial self. Thank you so much. I I wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks for listening to Mate. I've really been enjoying listening back to these archival episodes of Mate and getting back in touch with, you know, the origin story of where um, I began the podcast and some of the really generous people that gave me their time early on when it was still a little bit unproven. And you know what? It's actually been pretty fun to kind of uh, check in with people and, and see what's been happening since uh, since we did the interview. So, uh, thanks for allowing me the opportunity to do so. This episode of Mate was edited by Josh Armour from Armour Pod Productions. The Mate logo is by Courtney Carmen. The Mate theme music is by Nine Inch Nails. And the ad music is by Ben Sound. All used under a Creative Commons license. Mate podcast was made with love and dedication in my hometown, Melbourne, Australia. 
I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time. Bye for now. Oh, this is recording, so I'm not going to make that joke. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What were you going to say? I'll tell you later. All right. (laughs)